This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone and welcome Christine to another edition of Wireless Books. Good day Beth. Brought to you from the lovely studios that are Otago Access Media or Otago Access Radio in the oh Dunedin Seabird Oh my goodness, Seabird we're getting Doi. so swanky aren't we? And on behalf of and for the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, Dunedin's oldest institution and a lending library. Yes, we are. And for a mere $69. Including GST per well, year. You get a fabulous year of having a librarian say, have you tried reading this? <laughs> That's very true. Very impressed you were open on Otago Anniversary Day. What a shame I didn't see that you were open till closing time. <laughs> yeah, I just... To start with, I just thought, oh, this is kind of almost peak um, Omicron. I f- if I have the day off, I'll just sit at home and, and fret. So I thought, uh-huh. I'll, I'll go to work. Oh, right. I don't quite understand that, but okay. Yes, and um, which means that I will be taking an extra day off at Easter time. And <sighs> yes, swings and roundabouts, Beth. And luckily for me, I have a friend visiting from Melbourne at Easter time, so I will have an extra day to spend with her. Well, that is lovely. Yes. You enjoy it. Well, yes, anticipating is, I am anticipating enjoying it. <laughs> now, you also have some very exciting news. Yes. Um, at the end of last year, the New Zealand Women's Weekly um, ran a fiction competition for a short story, and I entered and Oh, about almost a month ago now, I received a phone call from the editor and she told me that I had won, which was an enormous surprise to me and I was delighted, I must say. I've got the silly grin on my face now. I've had the silly grin on for about a good fortnight. And uh, yes, so in the issue that is being um, next Monday on the 28th, it will be in there. And um, so rush out and buy the Women's Weekly, but as as a special pleasure for you, <laughs> Beth is going to read my short story to you. So um, I hope you enjoy it. It's um, ooh, it's exciting and scary. <laughs> well, I'm very proud of you, Christine, and you'll be able to read this at the book club when it starts up again. I will. In fact, when we start doing New Zealand short stories again, I, I'm going to oh, force those poor people to God. listen to me. <laughs> you're part of a genre. <laughs> Well, I'll try to do it justice. Thank you. Anyway, Missing Peace by Christine Powley. Published author. <laughs> <laughs> she studied her reflection in the driving mirror. She looked immaculate, but she rearranged the set of her fringe anyway. All the Botox was fiendishly expensive, but it was worth it. No one would ever take her for the 40-year-old mother of three that she was. She smiled to herself. Not even the man to whom she had once been married would recognise her now. 
Grimly, she remembered how Simon would berate her for letting herself go. He never realised just how demanding small children could be. She simply didn't have the time to take pride in her appearance after running around after his kids all day. She had found it impossible to keep the weight off, another failing on her part. How well she remembered the snide comments and most hurtful of all, the lack of interest when she did try and make an effort. No wonder she gave up trying. Gradually she had come to realise that he took a perverse pride in showing off his still youthful looks in contrast to her dowdy plumpness. She knew it gave him a buzz to know that people would be speculating about why he was with such a frump. It wouldn't have mattered so much if he had at least given her some respect. After all, she had wrecked her figure having his children, but he would never even acknowledge that much. He always acted as if it was entirely her fault. She had tripped him into marriage with her youthful prettiness and then had let herself go totally. It was always her fault. She remembered holding her third child in the hospital, a pretty baby who they had named Rosie. The first time mothers had regarded her with silent contempt. She could tell that they vowed to never let themselves go downhill as far as she had. They would preen themselves before visiting hours and some of the bolder ones reserved their brightest smiles for Simon as he sauntered in a few minutes before visiting ended. She decided that she had to get out before she was propped up in another hospital bed holding the next baby. It had been hard work skimming the top off housekeeping, depriving herself of all the little treats that had made life bearable. When she had finally made $500, she had done a bunk, taking that week's housekeeping as well. She went to Auckland taking a job in the china section of a large department store. After a few weeks of her new life, she decided it wasn't enough just to be free of Simon and the children. She had to redesign herself. Her ultimate revenge would be refusing to stay the blimp he had made her into. She joined a gym and learned a whole new set of eating patterns. Soon she was lighter and fitter than she had been in years. She started to spend more on clothes and to experiment with makeup. Her new poise was much admired and she was moved into the dress section at work. Promotion had been rapid. She was now the head buyer, travelling extensively. She smiled in satisfaction as she relaxed in the comfort of her company car. It was amusing to consider how far she had come while parked in the cul-de-sac outside the house where she had lived with Simon all those years ago. She didn't know if he'd still lived there, but curiosity had drawn her to have a look while she was back in the old town on business. Not for the first time, she wondered how he had coped, left with three children. He had never taken much interest in them when she had been there, so she doubted that he would have put himself out much. Most likely he'd sweet-talked some silly little thing to move in and slave for him. A movement caught her eye. An old man and a young girl of about nine came out through the front door. The child ran ahead, crossing the street to pat a dog that was sunning itself on a neighbour's front lawn. The man stood watching her indulgently. With a start, she recognised the shabby leather jacket he was wearing. Simon had bought himself one just like it during the time she had been saving to leave him. 
She remembered it well. She had been annoyed that he had spent so much without thought. She took off her sunglasses to study him more carefully. Amazingly, the stooped, grey-haired man was Simon. Simon, who had always been so proud of his looks, never missing a chance to admire himself in any reflective surface. The years definitely had not been kind to him. She laughed sourly to herself. She looked at the girl with new interest. This must be her Rosie. She had been a lovely baby, the only thing that hurt her to leave. She had grown into a fetching child, playing with the dog, then scampering back to her father, taking his hand and leading him down the road. Wearily, she put her sunglasses back on. She should have been gloating that Simon had become as much of a carework frump as she had been, but somehow the only emotion she felt was deep envy. For all the stoop in his walk, his face held only pride and contentment. He and Rosie passed her unnoticed, absorbed in happy conversation. With a surge of dismay, she realised she had handed Simon her greatest treasure somehow without even realising the value of it. Mm. We'll go to a sting. I'm drying my tears. (laughs) For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N, A-E-U-M dot org dot N-Z. Very Catherine Mansfieldish at the end. Oh, thank you. Um, it's very odd to hear it spoken by somebody else. I mean, I've read it aloud to myself when I, I wrote it. And it's, it's funny because I've always liked it. And I all, it's a story that I wrote a long time ago. And I always imagined it being in a, in a woman's magazine. So it's very gratifying that it is going to be in the New Zealand Women's Weekly. And I read it before I sent it off. And I still liked it. But when they told me I had one, I went back and read it. And I thought, I don't know if I like it anymore, <laughs> which is just sort of one of those weird things. Yeah. Um, like you say, she's the protagonist isn't particularly likeable. No. But I think she's just a woman who found herself in a set of circumstances. And in a way, she, she'd done all the things that we were supposed to do as women. She, she went off and she got new habits of eating and she started exercising and she made herself all glamorous and she, she pulled herself up. But it, I don't know, it's just one of those funny... St- I'll tell you how it started. I just had this picture of a woman looking in the, you know, the, the, the mirror in the car where you, mm. you, you look at cars behind you, or, or rearview mirror, rearview mirror, and you're a published author. Yeah, a rearview mirror, and you either look at cars or put your lipstick on, depending <laughs> on your mood. And I just had this image, and I sort of had to form a story around it. But anyway, that oh, thrilling as that is. <laughs> so, what were the judges' comments? Did you get any comments? They said it was well written. Oh, right. <laughs> well, it was. Move me to tears. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's very very odd because, you know, you sort of scribble away by yourself and you sort of hope that maybe people will get to read it one day. But, oh, um, there you go. Yeah. There so, you go. I got that dumb smile on my no, face again. It's wonderful. No, look, congratulations. Really good. Yeah. Really good. Now, can we get on to some book reviews? Yes. Yeah, enough, enough, enough self um, publishing now. 
Thank yes, you. Yes, that's right. Here's some real authors who have real <laughs> books. Now, this is a Scandi, so I know that you'll probably... I want it. Yes. It's called A Question of Guilt by Jean Le Hurst. And he's... Well, he's had a few... Um, translated as the word, because I think he's written quite a few, but um, he's, we've got two other of his books in the library. And this one is... And sorry, the writer is actually used to be a policeman, so he has all the um, police procedurals down pat mm-hmm. because that's what he used to do. And his hero is actually been the, the BBC have made a drama out of it, whistling, whistling. Anyway, um, he's on holiday and he's and he receives um, a letter to him at his home address, which is a bit unnerving. And inside, the, first of all, the writing on the envelope addressed to him is very, um, it looks like it's been printed to look like handwriting, but it's actually very, very neat handwriting. And inside there's a, a piece of paper which has been folded in four. When he opens it, it just has a string of letters which he recognises as the old-fashioned um, case numbers that they used to use before everything became computerised. And He's got no idea what it refers to, and in fact, he can tell from the case um, number that it's in a district next to him, and it's from 1999, so it's you know over 20 years ago. And so he, even though he's on holiday, he's intrigued, and so he calls he calls up um, one of his associates and asks them to pull pull the file and send it to him, and. And it turns out to be a file about a young woman who was murdered and the police almost immediately fixed on her um, her boyfriend who she'd just broken up with and he was um, convicted and sent to prison. But the fact that this file has been brought to his attention makes him wonder if there's more to it. So he sort of starts to investigate on the premise that maybe the police have arrested the wrong the wrong person because it was all just a little bit too pat and easy and you know most of the time in real life the who who done it is pretty bleeding obvious mm. and most crimes aren't aren't um who done it but this is um and at the same time there's a missing person case going on and although he's not involved in it immediately he's he's sort of keeping a professional eye on it and just following it on the news and it's a, a couple that went went out of an evening and they're in a pub together and they, they're a married couple and they start to have a fight and the woman leaves early and then the husband waits in the pub for a, has a few drinks and then he gets back home and she's not there and he waits about 48 hours before reporting her missing to the police. Now this could be something significant or might not be and the most obvious thing is to assume that probably Mm. she's dead and probably the husband did it but maybe these are cases where the obvious is not so well I hope so (laughs) yes now this book is it's a crime story and it's by Anglian Comer who is the lovely Anglian Comer Okay, who is the lovely lady who um, wrote her her life story in Lady in Waiting. I know, and I loved that book. Mm. I loved that book and the other book she wrote. 
um, the one about mistake. the island. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, um, she's actually set it in the house, the the stately home in which she didn't grow up in, but she was, she spent the Second World War there essentially. And so she's, and in a way, she's a protagonist. She sort of created um, a, pers- a person of her age um, after the war. And it starts with her, in the book, when her biography, she, her and her mother started up a pottery and she she would go out as a sales rep. And so that's her, that period in her life and that's when her grandfather, who she'd become close to in the Second World War, um, was um, died and her father inherited the title and she went from being a, a non to being Lady, Lady Anne. And... And she's sort of gone to this and she's drawn on more memories and told it in more detail but fictionalised it and so that there's a, there's a crime in it whereas you know, her, her grandfather just died whereas she's made it into, he's died in mysterious circumstances and, and so on and she's made a, a more of a mystery of it and the, the protagonist who was basically her has got to find, find out. But she, sort of, she says on the back, she's explained all the um, parts where... Where she deviates from the truth, but most of it is more for timings and stuff mm. like that. And part of it is that um, Hocken um, is haunted by a previous um, lady of the manor, and and she 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 swears this is true. And so the the ghost is part of the story as well. Oh, good. Yeah, I do remember. A, and in her autobiography. Lady in waiting about how she went to America to sell the family's pottery. She's a very clever, great mm. businesswoman. Mm. You know more than just being yes. Princess Margaret's lady companion. Um, yeah, no, that that would be great. I'll, I'll take that. Thank you. Yeah, she is. Um, I think she's quite a fascinating person, and yeah, sure is. Obviously, very hardworking because. Becoming an author is not something I think that she particularly planned on doing. She wrote her biography and she's led such an interesting life that it was such a hit and she decided she liked writing so she wrote another one. And I think she's, well, no, she's good at at finding plots but she sort of likes to base them on the reality of of her life because she, her and her husband were at... um, developed Mystique as a place for the jet set. Mm. And um, so, yeah. Now this is a book which I somehow think that you probably won't be grabbing for. It's a romance novel, Should I Tell You, by Jill Mansell. And it's around three people who, when they were younger, um, were both in the same, three of them, there's two boys and a woman, or three men and a woman. And (laughs) Sorry, I'm getting a bit excited. And they were both, all three of them were put in foster care and they kind of overlapped and became firm friends and their foster parents were lovely. And so they, they just totally enveloped with love and care and they just bonded with their foster parents and with each other and they were in a small seaside town. And and so when they become adults, they, they all three of them drift back to being to work, to be there and they're still friends but... Um, is there a romance in the year? And of course, of course there is. She's just looking at me blankly. I mean, romance in the year, that means nothing to her. <laughs> Next. <laughs> okay. This is um, a true story by Lois Price. Prius? Yeah, Price. Price. Yeah. It's spelled weird. I don't know people. People have funny spellings. 
And it's called Revolutionary Ride, and it's in, on the road in search of the real Iran. And she's a woman who um, does writes travel. She's a travel writer, and she um, travels the world on a motorbike. And although it's sort of an older book, um, it was given to us. It's, I think it's sort of got a re- bit of a relevance to today. It's actually back in um, 2003, but I think. Iran is back in the news in a, in a weird way because, of course, it's a, an oil producer and um, we had sort of been working, or the West had been working on normalising our relationships with Iran and then and Obama had made a, formed a, a deal with them and um, Britain as well that they, you know, for them not to develop nuclear weapons and we would buy their oil. And then Donald Trump, when he became president, tore that deal up. And now that um, he's no longer president and Joe Biden is, they're starting to work towards bringing, resuscitating that deal. And it's important because we actually need Iran's oil desperately because um, we can't get Russia's oil. Ah, It's all geopolitical and... Oh, sounds great, but even better is the author, Lois, lives on a Dutch barge in London. She is seriously cool. Yes, she is. No, that would be a great book, but since I can only get three out, I'll... I'll um, you wait. Yes. And, um, I'll hedge my bets. She actually starts it with a quote from Frida Stark, who is um, a New Zealander. So, so she's very well read as well, let's put it that way. Um. Now I've said about this quote, maybe I should try and find it. It's typically, you, can, you f- open something up and you find it and meet up. I have no reason to go except that I have never been, and knowledge is better than ignorance. What better reason should could there be for travelling? Frida Stark, there you go. Oh, I like it. Yeah, that's a good quote, isn't it? Now this is by... Martha Hall Kelly, and it's called the Sunflower Sisters, and she's the woman who wrote the Lilac Girls, and um, she wrote another one, um, Lost Roses, and she's very good at um, taking um, real life situations, um, historical situations, and writing about them, and it's very focused on how women coped in in the past, and she. Previously, she's written about um, the Second World War and um, how it's affected um, various women. And this one, she's gone right back to the American Civil War. And she's got two sisters um, in the in the North who who want to be educated and want to become doctors. And, of course, that's not the easiest thing to do. And the Civil War is an opportunity for them to, because, you know, all hands to the pumps sort of situation. And... But the other women are a slave woman who are on a plantation in the south, and they, the woman who who owns them, is not a very particularly nice woman, and they're terrified of her and they're desperate to escape her, and um, yeah, so that's I, f- I find this f- quite fascinating. Um, the other day on my Facebook feed, I. I read something about a woman who had who was a slave owned by George Washington, and she was, um, well, she was I think a mulatto. I think she was at least half white, but or maybe so she and she was a favourite of George Washington's wife Martha, and she was an indoor servant, and um, would 
would accompany Martha on visits to, to, and stuff, and and so she had it appeared like quite a cushy um, situation, and the the Washingtons felt that they cared for her and looked after her very well, and unfortunately, when Martha's granddaughter got married. This, this woman heard Martha say that, or she, Martha told her, I think I'm going to give you to my granddaughter as a wedding present, which is horrific, isn't it? There's such yeah. the, the whole thing that's hideous. And the granddaughter was was um, a bit flighty and unpredictable, which is, but you know, not so would probably make a bad mistress. And the man that she was marrying had been in India and he came with two. Um, half Indian illegitimate children and so he was a bit dodgy so and so she escaped and and the Washingtons actually made a great effort to get her back and she and she, but she evaded them and she actually lived to be quite old and when she was I don't know in her 80s or 90s a newspaper came and interviewed her and so we have basically in reasonably in her own words um, her her telling of what it was like to be a slave of George and Martha Washington, mm. which is amazing. And they think it is, and they uh, George and Martha think that they cared for her and um, looked after her well. And yet, yeah, uh, if they had, they would have freed her. If they thought of her as their property and object. That makes me sick. However, we've moved on. From, well, well, actually, we? one of the people that George Washington contacted to try and get her back he was a man who had had slaves and he and so George thought that he would be of a mind to help mm. George get his slave back but this family had actually freed their slaves and had employed them uh. as as servants and mm. were paying them a wage and so they didn't try very hard to help him oh good yeah so you know oh. Very good, Christine. But look, we can't mm. go on to the other last mm. book that uh, you you were going to review. But I'll take it anyway. So thank you, everyone, and great story, uh, Christine. Oh, thank Congratulations. you. Should be proud. I'm proud of you. I know a published author. <laughs> I know people. Okay. Until next time, everyone. Yes. Happy reading. Happy reading. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.